There are not 100 people in the United States who hate the Catholic Church, but there are millions who hate what they wrongly perceive the Catholic Church to be. Bishop Fulton J. Sheen. Hey everybody, welcome to the Revisionist History Podcast, where we set the historical record straight, no matter who it might offend. I'm Paul, and I hope you had a great Christmas yesterday. With the holidays in full swing, this will be our final Throwback Thursday episode of 2019. It's hard to believe we're at the end of 2019, but the episode that we'll be looking back on today is five myths about the Catholic Church, which also happened to be one of our top five episodes of the year. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the Revisionist History Podcast, where we set the historical record straight, no matter who it might offend. I'm Paul, and today's episode is yet another one likely to offend multiple groups of people. That's because today, we're looking at an institution that triggers strong reactions 2,000 years after its founding. It is virtually impossible to discuss history, particularly in the West, without the Catholic Church showing up in one way or another. In this episode, I wanted to dispel some myths and misconceptions about the Catholic Church that definitely fall into the category of revisionist history, well beyond merely religious aspects. Make no mistake, the Catholic Church, both historically and in the present day, matters. Historically, its presence and impact is undeniable. And currently, it's the faith home of over one billion people worldwide. So whatever your religious viewpoint, background, or lack of either, The church's history should matter to you, and as with all history, it should matter that it be told factually. So let's debunk some myths, some old and some new, that surround the Church of Rome. Before looking at and dispelling some common myths about the Catholic Church, let me first say that I'm talking here about myths, not prejudices. There is a difference. Some outright lies that sprang from prejudices are well known, that the Church is the biblical whore of Babylon and that the Pope is the Antichrist. My own grandfather, while growing up in the South in the early 1900s, was taught that Catholics ate their young. I'm not kidding. They ate their young. It took my Italian Catholic grandmother to show him the errors of his upbringing. So, on to the historical myths. Many of the myths about the church and the historical revisionism that followed were first begun by the reformers during the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century. Then, as now, one of the best ways to discredit a rival is to tell lies about them. One that persists to this day 
revolves around the Bible and the people's access to it, especially before the invention of the printing press. Before the printing press made books and Bibles widely available, Bibles in Catholic churches were chained to the podium. The myth is that this was done to keep people from reading them. The truth, however, is that they were chained up to keep people from stealing them. Before Gutenberg's printing press made books affordable, Bibles were incredibly expensive because they were copied by hand, usually by monks, and illustrated, a very laborious, time-consuming process. It's estimated that a Bible then could cost the equivalent of a year's wages, a mighty temptation to thieves. And the concern about theft went well beyond the simple monetary factor, however. The Bible was necessary for the Mass to take place, since all the readings came from it. No Bible, no Mass. The Bibles were chained not to keep the scriptures from the parishioners, but to ensure they could be taught from it. Another myth from the time of the Reformation is that the Inquisition was invented by the Church to persecute and torture Protestants so they would return to being Catholic. One of the ironies here is that the first pontifical inquisition, which was essentially a church court of law, was set up in the year 1230, almost 300 years before the Reformation. It was established to root out heresy or false teaching with the goal not of persecution, but of the salvation of souls. There were certainly abuses committed in the name of the Inquisition over the centuries, as happens in legal proceedings to this day. But the number of people executed has been inflated to almost comical levels. For example, some so-called historians claim that millions died during the Spanish Inquisition, a figure that would have depopulated the country. More reputable researchers, like Professor Agostino Borromeo, from Sapienza University in Rome showed that of the roughly 125,000 people tried by church tribunals in Spain as possible heretics, less than 1,300 were actually executed. Now this is not an insignificant number, but it's nowhere near millions. And while we see these trials today as wrong and inhumane, in the medieval mind, they were about the salvation of souls something taken far more seriously then than now. A bit of revisionist history that's not tied to the Reformation that comes up quite often today is the belief that the Crusades were fought to convert Muslims and expand the Catholic Church into previously unreached lands of the Middle East. This myth is popular both with secular opponents of Christianity and radical Muslims. Sadly though, it's become the common belief among many mainstream Muslims around the world. I have to say up front that the Crusades, from both the Muslim and Christian perspective, are an incredibly complex topic historically. But dealing only with this one narrow myth, the facts are fairly straightforward. First of all, the Middle East and North Africa were not previously unreached lands for the church. Christianity started in the Middle East and thrived in North Africa for 500 years. It was only the Arab conquests of the 7th century that turned the region to Islam. Then, as now, Christians traveled to the Holy Land, and particularly to Jerusalem, on pilgrimage, 
and for a long time the Muslim rulers allowed this. But by 1095, when Pope Urban II called the First Crusade, this had drastically changed. Muslims had begun killing or enslaving Christians traveling to Jerusalem and had even begun destroying Christian churches. The First Crusade was simply an attempt to end this persecution by retaking the Holy Land, not an evangelistic land grab. Closer to our own time, there's a persistent myth that Pope Pius XII collaborated with the Nazis during World War II, leading some to even call him Hitler's Pope. This sad revisionism has persisted despite being debunked numerous times over the past 70 years. First of all, consider that Pius XII, while still a cardinal, co-authored an encyclical with Pope Pius XI that was sent to every Catholic church in Germany in 1937. It condemned the Nazis in no uncertain terms and was read from the pulpit to the people. When Pius XII became Pope, he did speak out against the Nazis, but this caused them to simply round up and execute even more Italian Jews. After this, he sought to help the Jews in more secretive ways, by hiding them in the Vatican, in Castle Gandolfo, and in other areas in and around Rome. It's estimated that he helped save over 800,000 Jews during the war. He's been praised for his efforts by dignitaries ranging from Albert Einstein, to Israeli President Golda Meir, to the chief rabbi of Rome. These people would hardly heap praise on a pope who helped Hitler. The final myth of this episode is also the most recent. It's also about a largely forgotten man that we would do well to remember. Almost since the moment of his death in 1978, after only 33 days as Pope, conspiracy theorists have claimed that John Paul I was murdered. Filmmaker Oliver Stone, who never met a conspiracy theory he didn't like, even mentioned it in his hit film Wall Street, calling John Paul I that Pope who got poisoned. Well, he wasn't poisoned. He died too young, surely, but of purely natural causes. The most likely cause was a thrombosis, or clot that obstructs the flow of blood. He had suffered just such an episode on a trip to Brazil only three years earlier. Ironically, the conspiracy angle was aided by church officials themselves when they admitted that they had lied about two otherwise minor and insignificant details. They first reported that John Paul I was found by a male aide and that he had been reading Thomas Akempis's book, The Imitation of Christ. In fact, he was found by a nun who worked in the papal apartments and was reading official work documents. The effort to avoid scandal, the Pope found dead by a woman, and to elevate his perceived piety, which needed no elevation caused suspicion about all the church said regarding his death. But he was not killed to keep him from overhauling the Vatican Bank. He died from an ailment he may not have even been fully aware of, and again, much too soon. We all remember John Paul II. Take some time to acquaint yourself 
with the man who was John Paul I. So there are just a few of the bigger historical myths about the Catholic Church that I hope I've helped rescue from the revisionists. There are many more out there, but many of those are theological in nature rather than historical. Some are actually both historical and theological, and really don't fit in this podcast for that very reason. In any case, keep on fighting the good fight to reclaim real history from those who would distort it. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to today's episode. I hope you're finding this podcast both informative and entertaining. If you'd like to help us keep episodes like this coming, please consider clicking on the support this podcast link in the show notes. It'll help us create more content and go a long way toward making this podcast completely ad-free. Thanks again.